This is Quarantine Conversations. Brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth and our host... Hello, I'm Daniel Gowerbach. Is Daniel. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on the podcast, we're talking to... Brian Hunt. Welcome, Brian. Now, in this series, we aim to uh, meet people at various stages in their careers. So would you consider yourself to be a student, a teacher, a researcher, a a hobbyist? Uh, Where are you on that spectrum? I guess I'm a researcher and a teacher. Okay. (laughs) And um, how would you describe an oceanographer? Um, I would say I would hesitate because there's already there, there's an, a number of different types of oceanographer. So um, it's basically someone who studies um, ocean processes anywhere, usually away from the the sediments, um, but it can include the sediments as well. So it's like the open water part of the ocean, and it can you can have people who focus on the physics, so like the temperature and the water movement and there's people who focus on the chemistry like what's in the water and um, and then there's the biologists who are thinking about how the physics and the chemistry are influencing um, uh, food webs and the animals that are living in the ocean and I'm, I'm one of those biological or ecosystem ocean- oceanographers who thinking about uh, how all these things link together affecting animals we care about. Cool. And how do you get into the field? Um, well, so I, I fortuitously, I suppose, um, I was I started life. Uh, I guess I, I grew up by the ocean, and um, I never I never wanted to be a marine scientist. Um, I had some sort of preconceived notions of what that looked like. Um, although that being said, I really wanted to study fish, so that's what, that was my ambition. I wanted to do uh, research on fish. I went to university to do that, and then I found that everything in uh, all ecosystems and ecology in general is just fascinating, so I got easily distracted down various different paths. I worked on uh, freshwater systems quite a lot and also terrestrial systems, and um, I was actually going to start a master's degree in, uh, in river and ecology and, um, and impacts of uh, forestry on, on river ecosystems, and then someone offered me a... Um, volunteer position, a research technician position on an Antarctic research expedition uh, after I finished my honours degree. And I thought, well, I'd never anticipated that I'd do that, so I'm going to go and I'm going to go for sure as I get this opportunity to find pass up. And um, so I did, and then I, I uh, got, uh, I totally fell in love with oceanography and the Antarctic. So I, Antarctica was my, my first experience of, of oceanography, and I spent quite a few years doing that. That would be very tempting. I can see why. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you explain briefly what you're researching right now? Um, yeah, basically, I research um, pelagic ecosystems. So, basically, yeah, those animals that are living in the water column. I, I, I research how they work how these ecosystems work and how they're impacted by um, climate change and other anthropogenic impacts um, so that we can have a better idea of what our future is going to look, look like and, and, and understand maybe some of the things that we can do 
get to you know, healthy ecosystems that are under stress these days, particularly in coastal environments. Oh, cool. And uh, have you ever made any major discoveries or anything that you think is interesting to discover? <laughs> um, so I have, yeah, so like in terms of what I, what I do is like wide ranging. I work, I've, I've done a lot of work in Tangson. Um, so really like the, the stuff that's at the base of the food chain. And here in British Columbia, I work, uh, quite a, I, I work on Tangson still, but I work through to uh, fish, like, uh, salmon. I have a lot of salmon research. Um, and so, yeah, I have, I guess uh, we've made various discoveries along the way uh, through our research projects on different um, on different parts of these these food webs, basically. So, with the, the small things, one of the I guess one of the um, interesting things we discovered was um, the relative importance of different types of phytoplankton to food webs. So that's a bit of a mouthful, but. So phytoplankton are the small algal plants, the single-celled algal plants that are supporting most of the biomass in the ocean. Like most animals somehow derive their energy from phytoplankton. And um, that's, you know, there's one term for a group of organisms that's actually incredibly diverse. There's lots of different types of phytoplankton. And so I've, I've been quite interested in how the types of phytoplankton really affect the uh, foraging or eating success of zooplankton and what it can mean for the, the greater ecosystem productivity. And there have been assumptions about <clears throat> what phytoplankton are important. Um, and one of those is that like, really diatoms are the, diatoms are the, big, um, the biggest phytoplankton uh, groups and they, uh, it's thought that they really support uh, a lot of the productivity in the ocean, and and they do to some extent, to a large extent. Um, but there's this. What we found is that there's a lot of zooplankton that don't like to eat diatoms actually. And so um, some of the research um, that I've done has has helped to sort of break that that uh, that preconceived idea that diatoms really underpin all of the zooplankton production, and that there's actually lots of small phytoplankton that the zooplankton prefer to eat. And so it helps us understand energy pathways through the food web and what that means for you know fishery productivity ultimately. So that was that was one of the things that was interesting. Um, also on phytoplankton uh, topics, um, there's a there's a class a class of we call them I guess yeah, that can be lumped as phytoplankton, but they're bacteria, cyanobacteria that are photosynthetic. Um, so they they reproduce, uh, they produce and uh, um, new cells by photosynthesis and uh, they are uh, they occur in mostly tropical and uh, sort of warmer subtropical oceans and for a long time we haven't really understood you know what role they play in ecosystems and so I had a project for a while where I worked in New Caledonia in the South Pacific um, which is a cyanobacteria hotspot it's a very unproductive ocean there's a lot of other nutrients and these cyanobacteria are particularly cool because they are able to um, use nutrients, uh, well, they're able to take nitrogen, they can take a nitrogen out of the atmosphere and turn it into organic biomass. And most phytoplankton don't do that. And so, uh, what we found was that, so, well, so what we did was we traced um, the, uh, the, well, we tried to work out like, how important these, these cyanobacteria were to the food webs in these unproductive oceans. And, uh, and we did that. Um, and we found they really make a large contribution. So it's, it's quite an interesting uh, case study because cyanobacteria can do well in nutrient-poor oceans, which is what we expect um, the future uh, to look like in many parts of the world's oceans, are more nutrient-poor because of warming and increased 
um, stratification, so like changes in ocean processes that soft nutrient supply to the surface and uh, the nutrients that support the phytoplankton. So in those cases, there can be some offset, at least by the increase in the, in the, the um, production of these cyanobacteria. That feels very relevant to uh, today, where we're learning about how, um, even though something's really tiny and in, almost invisible, um, it can have a major role in an environment. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> um, how do you consider your research important and um, having like real-world applications? Um, so I think, um, well, in terms of uh, one of the main things I've focused on is, is ecosystem and particularly processes. Um, and so um, the research is understanding, is, is an endeavor to understand how systems work um, and who depends on whom in the food web. Um, particularly filling in on all of our knowledge, knowledge gaps, as many as we can, um, in the lower tropic levels. And by that, I mean the really small stuff like the bacteria, viruses, phytoplankton, zooplankton, um, which is most of the biomass in the ocean. Um, and so I think, yeah, so our, our research, you know, like the research that Final Earth does, is really helping to understand these linkages and how these small organisms are connected. And that's going to be really useful for us in, in, in understanding firstly how the system works and then secondly how to respond to change. And this will help us to better forecast what the future is going to look like. Um, so, and then there's some more sort of, <clears throat> I guess, more tangible things like understanding. I mean, I have some projects that work with uh, restoration and, um, um, for instance, and of estuarine systems and um, so we're working with a group uh, in Bain Sound, uh, where we're researching how salt, uh, salt marsh restoration can enhance uh, coastal ecosystems. So that's uh, you know, that's quite an interesting case study. Um, it's, it, it's, it's thinking about what we can do to improve the situation in the ocean. That's something that's actually quite quite difficult as an oceanographer to, to come up with solutions because it's very hard to affect change in such a huge environment you know, that the ocean represents. And it's, it's really difficult in the tragic environment. Most of the changes are you know, related to carbon dioxide emissions um, and warming, ocean acidification, and there's not much we can do about that at a, at a immediately at a local scale. There's definitely lots we can do in terms of local actions. You know, we can, we can reduce our carbon footprint, <clears throat> but that's contributing to this, you know, global CO2 emissions. And so it's really a, a uh, it's, it takes a huge combined effort to, to make an make a impact there. But at, at the local scale, you can, it's very difficult to change ocean conditions, but it's easier to do so at the nearshore environment where you can actually, you know, you can help improve habitats, um, maybe that salt marsh or eelgrass or kelp, um, and you can change some of the practices that have local impacts like, uh, you know, sewage outfalls, um, nutrient additions from farming, how this might impact coastal environments. So the coastal, the coastal interface is an interesting place for an oceanographer to be able to actually um, identify effects of human actions and then to uh, help come up with solutions to, to improve the, um, the health of these um, nearshore habitats that are really critical for a lot of animals. In British Columbia, we have uh, salmon and herring, um, you know, fish, I, I cite those as fish species that people know, but that really depend on these initial environments. And so there's, there's, a, there's an example of where we can identify 
effects. Uh, we can identify some solutions that can then that, that can have benefits for some of these animals that we care about. Absolutely. The ocean is so um, diverse and complex, and it's an area that we haven't really uh, focused on traditionally. Um, and so you're, you're really filling in a, a big gap in our collective scientific knowledge, um, but also doing it at a time when that picture is also changing very quickly. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I can imagine it's quite challenging, um, but also quite rewarding. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, it's, 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 an, it's a fantastic time to be working on uh, ocean, ocean problems. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of, uh, I think there's some overwhelming issues that we're having to deal with. There's some overwhel like, overwhelming in that it's like, these are really big issues. Um, carbon dioxide emissions, warming, ocean acidification, but it's like, it's a really important time to be doing research to understand what's going on because I think that by you know, raising awareness as to impacts, we can help um, you know, stimulate or like help force a change in the way we do things. Like one of the, one of the nice, uh, you know, one of the, the, the examples of human impacts that comes up quite a lot is uh, of, of late is, is plastics and, and Plastics is a is an interesting example because it's it's something that yeah I think people really relate to that um, they they recognize you, know, you can see plastic in the ocean you recognize the problem quite easily you don't see um, you know, ocean warming very easy you don't see ocean acidification necessarily but you do see plastic pollution and there's very graphic images of you know like of impacts on animals you see just images of seabirds that have died because they're Stomachs are full of plastic, and um, and then the, the the more we've looked, you know, the more we found that plastic is, is everywhere. And um, I think um, you know, there's plastic is one of many issues in the ocean, but it's sort of symptomatic of the, the widespread influence we have had on on ocean ecosystems. And really, at the end of the day, like this, there's no system, no marine system, or probably any system on Earth that is untouched by the human hand um, in some way. Uh, so yeah, although it's a, it's a, it's a. I think uh, you know, it's not necessarily. Um, it's not all like good news, basically. Is what I'm saying like, about you know what's happening in the ocean and the research that we're doing. But it's an important time to be doing research to be understanding effects and, and like the, yeah, and, and trying to affect change and to help us better manage um, how we take care of the ocean. Absolutely. Um, what's your favorite part of your work, or the most exciting part of your work? Um, I, I think, I mean, all, so there's all these different sides to um, the ocean science, and there's uh, like this planning, like developing ideas, um, you know, uh, identifying issues that precipitate in the planning, like how do you like tackle problems? So like that's uh, um, you know, getting together with a group of people and. and and, and brainstorming and thinking about you know what are the key things we should be should be doing. That's that's really exciting. The planning is is, is fantastic. It's like uh, because you're trying to piece together you know some very complex uh, sort of um, research um, methods together into a, into a whole framework and you know, maybe implementing that uh, from a, a small boat or a large vessel. Uh, maybe you're having to you know you plan a plan an expedition out into the open ocean. But that's also very 
Um, that's very interesting, um, nice component to the work. The field work itself is fantastic. I mean, I, I love the field work. I, I think I, I probably feel like I, my default is too to say that that's the best thing. Um, but I mean, when you, when you take a step back, like all these other parts of it are, are really fantastic. And like, you know, getting back on field work and then analyzing all your samples um, and the data. I mean, this is this is where the, the truth is revealed, and and this is this is also really exciting in being able to put that together. Particularly working with like groups of people, like a team of scientists, where you you know you're sharing ideas and helping to sort of stimulate each other. And this is it's all yeah, very interesting. It's a it's a the whole process is. Uh, multifaceted and it's really exciting to be, to be part of that process. Speaking of field work, um, something that I often hear from our researchers is that the craziest things happen out in the field. Uh, they've always got some really interesting field stories. Uh, do you have any you'd like to share? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, uh, yeah, there's lots of, there's always some interesting field stories. I, I think, um, what would be a good one? So I, I did lots of research in the Antarctic, and uh, um, I don't know, this is not particularly related to the research. It's sort of aligned with the research. So um, in one of my expeditions, we were doing a lot of work on sea ice, um, and we were out on an icebreaker, and we would get off periodically, uh, we'd be lowered down onto the ice, and then we would go out and we would uh, take measurements, we'd take ice cores, do that type of thing. and. Um, on the one, the one expedition, um, we were. I was working on one of the Australian vessels, and we were being, um, we were being lowered onto the ice uh, with a crane in a, in a cage. Um, the crane was on the foredeck of the, of the vessel. And, uh, we were lowered down, and we all there was three of us. And we went off and started doing our measurements. We had to walk a fair ways because we needed ice of a, of a certain thickness. We found our perfect spots and we started doing our work. And then, um, you know, all of a sudden, we just heard this. Uh, cracking noise and the, and the ice started breaking up all around us. And, um, and we uh, you know, were starting to drift away from the main, the main ice flow. And two of us, you know, we grabbed our stuff and we ran and we, we managed to jump over. Uh, we probably, maybe we shouldn't have done that. We probably should have just waited. But we were just in the moment. We grabbed our stuff and we, we jumped from the, our broken off flow onto the main flow and got back to the vessel. But one of the, our friend was stuck there and yet he, um, he was rescued by um, one of the Rescued crafts as he drifted, as he drifted away, but uh, there was more to the story. So we 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 got back uh, we got back onto the vessel uh, using this crane, and um, and then the next time we came to our ice, you know everything was fine. Our friend was rested, and then we, we went off to the next spot and we were like debating like how we going to get back onto the ice. And um, for some reason, the uh, yeah the captain wasn't happy with the crane that we were using. Uh, he preferred to use another crane that was in a better position. So we switched it up for the rest of the expedition. So the one that we had we had just used the, when we drifted away was not used again until the end of the expedition. And uh, so we get back to um, we get back to land, back to port, and then um, they were starting to offload in the vessel, and now we were at the dock. And they used the same crane again. Um, for the first time, and they looked at two people in the in the same cage we had been using from the deck, and they were moving them over onto the onto the dock. And as they swung the crane over onto the dock, the, the cable snapped, and the and the cage fell onto the dock with these two crewmen. And um, uh, one of them was was injured. Um, um, 
and the other was not so, uh, you know, they actually both injured one. One was, you know, he had to go to hospital, but he was okay. They were both okay, just to say that. And, um, um, but it was, you know, that could have been, we were like really worried about those guys, but that could be us. So it could have been, you know, the next time we were lowered over the ship onto the ice, on, in this cage that we were tethered to, if the cable would have snapped, we would have transferred the ice into just like 4,000 meters of water. So we were, we were lucky. Yeah, it used to happen in port. Yeah, no, it would have been much worse if it had been on water because uh, it was the the, the regulation that you had to be strapped into this cage and then you would just be dragged under because it's pretty heavy. Oh, wow. That was was one of the fun, well, not fun, but like interesting field stories that I I had. (laughs) Yeah. It's not the kind of danger you often associate with oceanographers and and scientists. No, and you know, generally, I mean, I think that the um, you don't see a lot of accidents or incidents on these on these vessels. So it's it's safe as long as you are behaving in a safe way. So like, you really have to pay attention uh, to what you're doing. Um, you you get a when you when you join a vessel for the first time, you will get a safety briefing from the captain. Uh, you will get training, and you. Pay, you pay attention to this because it's yeah, it's really important. But mistakes mistakes at sea can be really costly. Um, but like I say, I haven't seen I haven't seen any really major incidents uh, at sea, which is um, you know which is, which is you know, we touch with it that so we will stay that way forever. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, speaking of challenges, I've heard that uh, some of our oceanographers get pretty seasick. How are you with the waves? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm. I'm, I'm I'm pretty good. I I don't get seasick um, on big vessels. I have been I have been sick on a, one time on a small vessel on the British Columbia coast. Um, we were crossing King Charlotte Sound and it was very stormy, and um, I yeah I, I got the I got I got I started feeling pretty ill. And I went out into the back deck and uh, I was standing there feeling. Sorry for myself and thinking about all those people who I'd seen seasick previously uh, and just thinking, having new empathy for them. And uh, standing there, and then the, the captain just bust out onto the deck, ran to the side, and threw up. Uh, so he was sick as well. So then I felt much better. It's like, okay, it's not just, it's not just me. It's like, even the captain getting sick. Yeah, it's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any tips for dealing with seasickness? Like, uh... um, yeah, don't. Uh, Oh, I don't know. Like the main thing is um, get fresh air. Um, so if you start to when you start to feel that coming on, it's good to be on deck, uh, get fresh air, and just to watch watch the horizon and uh, just distract yourself with uh, other thoughts. <laughs> yeah, if it looks like it can be a downward spiral once you you know start feeling ill and um, you start feeling sorry for yourself and feeling that you're trapped and you're never going to escape, it's like, well, that's what's going to happen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. It's all in your head. <laughs> yeah, well, it's obviously not all in your head, but you can you can definitely do something to, uh, to help yourself. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, do you see any problems or issues with uh, oceanography or anything you'd like to solve in the future? Um, yeah, I mean, there's 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 many there's many problems uh, in terms of like research questions. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, um, yeah. There's there's lots of there's lots of challenges. Um, 
I think that uh, what I talked about earlier, um, this understanding the connections between organisms is, um, this is still a problem. Um, because small animals are really difficult to work with. I mean, we can, we're, we're much better, we're quite good at detecting them. We're very good at detecting them. We know what's there. But how do they interact? This is really difficult. Um, and so, but I, I think that we're getting into a better position to solve some of these, these, these problems by, I mean, with new methods. We have a lot of like genetic methods now that, um, that, that can help with this. And, um, and so these are some of the approaches where we're now deploying in the, in the field and lab studies to understand how these systems work. Um, so that's, that's one thing. Um, I think that, yeah, there's still some unknowns and we have some colleagues who will talk about uh, viruses in the ocean and, uh, and, um, this is a, you know, we know that viruses impact phytoplankton, um, other organisms. You know, we detect them in our fish, but we don't. I don't think we, we know the full extent of uh, virus impacts on, on organisms and, and what role that plays in how these systems work. So um, we have a, a researcher in our department, Peter Settle, who's a expert on this, and he will um, he will convince you that they are very important. And then um, one of the things that's interesting in our area. <coughs> We live in the coastal temperate rainforest um, of, the, of the North Pacific, and um, this is the biggest um, existing tract of, of coastal temperate rainforest in the world. You get these habitats elsewhere um, on, on most continents, um, and so it's a really interesting place because we have so much rain, and, uh, and there's so much material that's transported off the land into the ocean. And um, there are people who've worked on the land side of things, like on the rivers and lakes, and there's people working in the ocean, obviously, the oceanographers, but there's not much real, um, there isn't any sort of deep understanding of how these two pieces connect. And um, the, we know that the marine environment is impacted by climate change. We know that the, the, the land environments and the freshwater is impacted by climate change, but we don't know the interaction between the two. So that's one of the things we're working on is this land-sea interaction in, in our area and um, what, what that output of materials from the land, which is like freshwater and lots of uh, um, organic matter and inorganic matter, all of this comes running out into our ocean. I think a lot of people will, uh, in DC anyway, will, or, or from Vancouver will know, will have seen the Fraser River plume in the summertime. You know, there's muddy water that goes out of the spread of Georgia. So what does this mean for the coastal environments? And uh, it's not just one, it's not just the Fraser River. There's, there's countless rivers up and down this coast that are pumping out materials. So what's the cumulative effect of this? And what unique properties does it give our coastal ocean? And so that's one of the, the, the things that we kind of we kind of think about more deeply, like develop a, a framework for um, understanding this interacts with uh, these interactive components of the system, um, and then you know, from there we can understand better how our coast environment will, will change and adapt um, as as climate changes. That's really interesting. It sounds like you're at the center of so many different Venn diagrams, um, <laughs> different environments overlapping each other. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's the thing with uh, with ecology or ecosystems is that there's this there's incredible connectivity um, and it's those uh, we like historically if you think of things like fisheries there's there's been a lot of focus on single species not the interactive effects and so that's really you know that that's the big advancement that we're that we're working towards now is understanding those interactive effects. Great. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so it sounds like you're uh, 
your environments can be affected by a different a bunch of different factors. Um, one major factor right now is, uh, of course, COVID, which is affecting research all over the place. Uh, how has the quarantine affected you, or have you been affected? Can you still do work at home? Um, yeah, I mean, the, this this quarantine has, has affected. I mean, yeah, it, it affects everyone, obviously, and 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 everyone in different ways. I mean, that's one of the, the things um, you know that's you, know, you realize in talking with you know, family and friends and colleagues and. Uh, um, I have a, I have a, 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 a big, um, big lab group as well, and we, we, we connect uh, multiple times during the week, and just you know keep, uh, keep in touch and to you know support each other. And you see that it really affects everyone differently. Everyone has different situations, so you know in your home and personal life, and, and so and that that obviously knocks on to um, to work. And then um, there's obviously the direct effects of you know university. The labs closing down, um, so yeah, we're not able to do lab work. Um, we've been limited in the field work that we can do. We've managed to re. Um, one of the things I've, I'm fortunate to do is to work extensively, extensively with the Hakka Institute, um, and the Hakka Institute is, is basically you know, facilitating our female salmon research program that we've been operating for the last five years in the northern part of Georgia. Uh, we're going to send up our UBC crew to join with them. Um, but this was not possible in the end. And um, but they have a small crew that's maintaining our sampling, so that's you know we are going to maintain our time series and we're going to have data for graduate students and, and postdocs to uh, um, samples and data to work with. Um, so that's that's very fortunate. Um, and a lot of people are not that fortunate. Um, but um, yeah, so it certainly impacted us in many different ways. Um, Conferences haven't happened. Um, yeah, the lab and field work is certainly important. But yeah, I, these things, uh, I think, in the scheme of things, they seem uh, rather trivial compared to the, the, the greater problems that we're facing. Um, so we're, we're certainly dealing with it. Um, and we're finding we've, we've been quite creative by um, necessity in, in finding things to uh, turn our attention to from the work side of things. And then also just really putting a lot of uh, emphasis on. I'm trying to <clears throat> support each other just in you know, the, the challenges that we all face in, in dealing with the situation. Well, I'm glad you've been able to find uh, some workarounds at least, uh, and it it hasn't yeah. completely shut you down. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, it's uh, it's definitely made us uh, think about some uh, some new avenues for our work, uh, things that we can tackle using um, digital formats. So we, we sort of. Uh, Doing compilation reviews of you know, different, uh, you know, getting at some of these questions I've been talking about, like trying to gather the known information, existing information together in a more comprehensive fashion, and that can help guide us uh, now. Lab and field work when we're able to actually get back to that. Well, Brian, uh, thank you very much. Um, yeah, I've really enjoyed uh, chatting with you today, um, and yeah. you've really opened my eyes at, into. Um, what oceanographers do and some of the, the work that you do. Um, do you have anything else you'd like to share? Um, no, I mean, I think uh, it's, it was a thank you for, for inviting me um, to, to share some of my experiences. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to uh, talk to people about oceanography. I hope that we can make it more of the you know, mainstream science. Uh, I mean, it is just, but maybe not to other people. So. Um, so yeah, anything we can do to you know, help uh, educate people about oceanography and uh, oceanographers and what they do, and that is very diverse, uh, that's, that's great. 
And then I just, yeah, I think I, I wish for everyone to, you know, keep well and keep safe under our our conditions, and uh, I hope that we uh, come out of this all stronger. Fabulous. Well, on behalf of the Pacific Museum of Earth, Brian, uh, thank you very much. That's my pleasure. Have a great rest of your day. <laughs> you too. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to Quarantine Conversations. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash quarantine conversations.